Hello, and welcome to Grasping Scripture. I'm so glad you could join us again for another episode of Grasping Scripture and another chapter of the Bible that we will be delving into. Today, our study is in Hebrews chapter 9, the ninth chapter of the book of Hebrews. Now, as I've reminded you at the beginning of every one of these episodes, if you haven't joined us previously, back up. You need to start at the beginning of Hebrews to hear the explanations and see how the study builds chapter by chapter towards where we are now. Uh, If you absolutely want to, you can dive in with us right here in the ninth chapter, but it would be better for you and your understanding of the text if you'd start with chapter one. But for those that have been with us, again, I am glad that you have returned Let's turn our hearts and our minds towards God's Word in this time together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You have blessed us. You have given us your Son, Jesus the Christ, as the one true mediator between us and you. You have done everything necessary to restore our broken relationship with you when we were so unable to do so ourselves, Lord, we thank you for that gift of salvation. We thank you for your word, which you inspired and which communicates to us about you and what you have done. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We ask that you would give us insight and wisdom as we study your word, that these would not just be words on a page from so long ago, but that they would be alive and speaking to us today. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and dive into the ninth chapter of Hebrews. It's this continuing discussion. We've talked about Christ as being a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We've talked in so many ways and at so many points along in the previous eight chapters about how Christ is superior, superior to, well, to Abraham, superior to the covenant, superior to Moses, superior to the angels who brought the law to Moses, superior to the priesthood. And really today we're expanding on that idea of priesthood and also bringing into the discussion that Christ is a superior sacrifice to the sacrifices that the high priest would make. And this is in a certain extent, this is the culmination of explaining how Christ is superior to this Old Testament system. Now, the rest of the book of Hebrews still talks about it, but in this continuing argument or discussion or debate or presentation or whatever you want to describe it as that's taking place in the book of Hebrews, chapter nine is, is just about the culmination of it, just about where we We reach the pinnacle of that discussion in Christ is greater than these others that were part of the old system. Now, chapter 10 is still going to talk about the sacrifice of Christ. It's still going to elaborate on it, but here we we really get into it. So let's look at chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says that first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle, and here it is a reference to the wilderness tabernacle. 
later followed by the temple, which was built on the same basic layout and design and used the same implements of worship. So it translates forward into the temple, but we're starting with the tabernacle. So the first covenant between God and Israel, it had regulations for worship and it had a place for worship that was here on earth. He's drawing an important distinction there. He goes on, there are two rooms in that tabernacle. Now, was there more to it than that? Well, ultimately with the temple, yes. But in the tabernacle, there were two rooms. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and the sac- and the sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. And you can go back and you can read in the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses, the stipulations for the building of the tabernacle and how it was to be laid out and all of that jazz. But here he's just reminding them, you had the holy place that was the first room, if you will, in the tabernacle and what was there. And it was important stuff. It was ritual stuff. It was things that the priests were involved in dealing with day to day. It wasn't specifically the duty of the high priest. He had another responsibility we're about to get to, but um, the priesthood was involved in this first room, this holy place with the lampstand that they were to keep burning all the time and the table and the sacred loaves of bread on the table that they had responsibility for. That place was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain. Now we think curtain or, okay, I won't drag you into this. When I think curtain, I think, well, I'm sitting here in my office looking at a curtain. It's it's a blackout curtain, but there it hangs. It's it's thick, but it's not real thick. It's a backed piece of fabric and and well, it softens up the room a little and controls the lighting. It's you know, it's a pretty useful thing. That's not the curtain they're talking about. Okay. The curtain that was used in the tabernacle and later that same material was utilized in the construction of the temple. That curtain that separates this next room, this most holy place, or you may be more familiar with it being referred to as the Holy of Holies, which would be the most holy place. That's what it is. Um, it was a huge, thick woven curtain. Think, uh, think more like something that is several inches thick. I don't mean wide. I mean thick. Uh, it's, it's massive. It's weighty. It's, it's sound deadening. It is, it is a barrier. It may be considered fabric, but it is a barrier of a curtain that hangs. It's not what we would hang on our windows or in our homes or that sort of thing. So back to it. Verse three. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was a second room called the Most Holy Place, or you may know it translated Holy of Holies. Verse 4, in that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which is covered with gold on all sides. Inside the Ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Now, what's the significance there? Well, in the ark, there's that reminder of God's provision. 
There's that reminder, Aaron's staff that sprouted. Go back and look it up. Google it, whatever. Uh, Aaron's staff that sprouted. That is a reminder of not to rebel against God. And then there are the stone tablets, the covenant, the law, the agreement. This is the terms of that covenant, that first covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory. Now they were statues whose wings stretched out over the ark's cover, the place of atonement. But we cannot explain these things in detail now. So the author presents all that. It's a reminder. Someone from a Hebraic background knew this stuff, okay? They would have studied it over and over again. So they, it would have been something familiar to them, but he's laying it all out going, look, here are the implements that are there. Here are these dividing points. Here's this first room and then this second room and, and how it falls out in that way. All of that is presented as a reminder of the old covenant, of the terms of the old covenant, of how worship took place. You had all these earthly representations that pointed towards God. These, the, the, the Bema seat, the, the, uh, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant with its cherubim there, those were depictions of angelic creatures that are, um, that are tied closely with the worship of God, that are attendants in the throne room of God is, is what they symbolize. So that's, that spot was to symbolize the presence of God with man, that point of contact, if you will. Now, is God everywhere? Yes. But in a ritualistic fashion, this was a point designated to say, look, when you enter into this curtained off room, you are entering into the presence of God. When the high priest once a year makes that atoning sacrifice for sin, offers that sacrifice uh, for sin, that happens at the place designated to represent the presence of God. The ark was not God. They did not worship the ark as God. They did not worship any of these things as God, but instead understood this is the place God has designated to say, this is where we will meet together. This is where we will have that official interaction. And so that's what's going on here. And the author is reminding them that that's what's symbolized there. And that's what it's all about. But then he ends the discussion with saying, but we can't explain these things in detail now. Now, it's not they can't explain. He's saying we're not going to waste the time or maybe waste isn't the right word. We're going to not spend the time now because those details and what happens there isn't the point. The point is what's better than that. And that's where the discussion turns. That's where he begins to talk in a very different way or about something very different. And we'll pick that up next. Okay, as we get to verse 6, we see that turning. It says, when these things were all in place, the priest regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. And he was always, or, and he always offered blood 
for his own sins and for the sins of the people or the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Verse 8, by these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance of the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. So there, he has set the parameters. He has described the implements. He's described the layout. He's described those that carry out the functions and what those functions are. Now, in a loose sense, but still, he's covered that. But look at what he says in 9. He says, this is an illustration pointing to the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priest offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. For that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in fact only until a better system could be established. They were an illustration pointing to the better system. They were a, a placeholder, a shadow of the better system that God had promised in Christ, of a better priesthood, of a better covenant, of a atoning sacrifice or an atoning sacrifice that would be adequate to completely cover the sins of the people. What was happening in a ritualistic way in an earthly place that represented or pointed towards somewhere else would ultimately be replaced by that somewhere else and by what it all pointed towards. And that's the point that the author of Hebrews is making that all of that is the old system. And the old system had its function and it had its place, but its place was to point towards the fulfillment. And Christ is that fulfillment. So if all that stuff was good, Christ is better. Now, as you're reading this, uh, maybe you're not a believer or maybe you're new to some of this and some of the ritual and everything. And you're reading this going, well, it's all this about blood. We're going to get into that in a little bit. But just kind of a, a side note on that, throughout the Old Testament law, uh, one of the things that God wanted to make clear to the people of Israel was that the cost of sin is death. Blood represents the, the life, I mean, we call it the lifeblood, uh, the, the life that is inherent in something. And actually going back to the Garden of Eden, God made it clear that our sin results in death. And we go, where was that in the Garden of Eden? When they were aware of their nakedness and they had made the inadequate fig leaf clothing, God killed animals and made suits, made clothing, not suits, clothing, um, appropriate for Adam and Eve out of the skins of the animals. Something had to die to cover their sinfulness. That is a motif we see carried throughout Scripture because there has always been the price of death for our sin. 
if we bear that price, then we face eternal separation from Christ and from God. We, we bear eternity in hell as the price for our sin. But God ultimately provides, and all of these animal sacrifices, all that blood points towards the blood willingly shed as a perfect, innocent, atoning sacrifice that did pay the price for our sin. And not just for a limited time, all of it forever. All those other sacrifices, that yearly day of atonement sacrifice, all of that was pointing towards what God would provide. And now as we move into the rest of chapter 9, we're going to be looking at that perfect sacrifice of Christ and his atoning work. Starting in verse 11, it says, So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered the greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. So there he draws the distinction. He is arguing from the lesser to the greater that if this was good, then this is better. If this inadequately covered our sins, then this does adequately cover our sins. If this priest was sinful and needed to atone for his own sins as well as the sins of the people, here's a perfect high priest that doesn't need to atone for his own sins because he has none, and he can atone for the sins of the people. So that's the distinction being drawn there. So just as you had the priest going into this earthly temple or tabernacle that had a physical place here on earth and represented something that was somewhere else. We have Christ, the perfect high priest in the order of Melchizedek, over all good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven. What the earthly tabernacle represented was that tabernacle, that throne room of God in heaven, Christ has entered the actual thing, not the earthly representation. And he's the only one that could do it. And he does it as our high priest. Our high priest. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world something transcendent, something beyond what has been created. Verse 12, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time, and he secured our redemption forever. So the sacrifice was better than the sacrifice of goats and calves' blood. It instead was a sacrifice of his own sinless blood, a perfect sacrifice by the perfect high priest in the perfect tabernacle in heaven. Not the one made by human hands, not part of this created world, but what the one in this world reflected. He entered the most holy place, 
not in the earthly tabernacle, but in the heavenly one. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not yearly because the sacrifice wasn't adequate. Instead, it was a perfect sacrifice, completely adequate and beyond. He entered that most holy place once for all time. And he secured our redemption forever. I mean, that really makes clear the superiority of Christ's sacrifice. And Christ is our high priest, doesn't it? Compared to what had to be done in the earthly tabernacle, he far exceeds it. Because the earthly tabernacle was a a pale illustration, a weak illustration, pointing towards the heavenly reality. And in Christ, we see the culmination of that heavenly reality. It goes on in 13 and says, Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ash of young cows would cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. In other words, so we don't have that guilt in our lives separating us from God, the guilt of our sin. It has been washed away by the blood of Christ. He paid the price for our sin. So we're set free, free to worship the living God. He goes on, for the, by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins that they had committed under the first covenant. First covenant showed us our sin pointed towards the work of Christ. Here we have the work of Christ and his work has set us free. Free from the penalty of our sins. Free so that we can worship the living God. Christ did that. He is the one that mediates that new covenant. You go, wait, new covenant. Doesn't that give you reminders of the Last Supper? This is my blood, which is a new covenant. Yeah. Verse 16. Now, when someone leaves a will, because it talks about us inheriting. So now he wants to explain in verse 16. When someone leaves a will, it is necessary to prove that the person who made it is dead. That will goes into effect only after that person's death. While that person who made it is still alive, the will cannot be put into effect. That is why even the first covenant was put into effect with the blood of animals. For after Moses had read each of God's commandments to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats along with water, and he sprinkled both the book of God's law and all the people using hyssop branches and scarlet wool. Then he said, 
This blood confirms the covenant God has made with you. And in the same way, he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle and on everything used for worship. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It sounds gruesome. And it is because the cost of our sin is gruesome. We don't realize that all too often. All too often we stand back and think, oh, it doesn't really matter. It's a little sin. It's not significant. The cost of our sin is gruesome. It's death. It's a life lost. To symbolize that under the old covenant, it was the life of an animal. And representing or reminding us that that life was lost is the blood. If you go back and read the Old Testament law, in the covenant system, the covenant system of worship under the Old Testament, there was a lot of blood. It was gory. Not to turn someone's stomach, not to not to just be gruesome or weird or, you know, any of that. It was entirely to remind us that the price of sin is the cost of a life. Sin brings death. Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's what the author of Hebrews is pointing towards here. He's reminding us through all of these Old Testament images, through all the imagery of the earthly worship under the first covenant, it all pointed somewhere. It all reminded us of the reality that sin brings death. And that to pay for that sin, something dies. That's why there's so much blood as we read through this passage. That's why everything gets sprinkled with blood. It's that last part of 22. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Sin has to be paid for. But you see, God's love for us, God's love for us, is evidenced in the fact that he stepped into his own creation in the person of Jesus the Christ, God in the flesh. And he died sinless, offering himself up as a sacrifice to pay for everybody's 
sin. That is the offer of God to all of us. That is how much God loves us, that he was willing to take that price of our sin for us. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now it doesn't have to be the shedding of the blood of animals. It doesn't have to be our own shed blood because it's the blood of Christ. Now picking up in verse 23, it says that is why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of things in heaven had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. So if what was on earth was a pale reflection, an inadequate reflection, an illustration of the tabernacle in heaven, and we had to use all this animal blood here on earth to purify everything, well, that wouldn't work for the tabernacle in heaven. It needed a better blood. What better blood? Hmm. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter into the holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter heaven, excuse me, and he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again like the high priest here on earth who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now, once for all time, for all the time that happened before that point, for that point, for all the time after that point, for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death and sacrifice. So here again, we see what the earthly priests do in the earthly tabernacle. And then we look at what Christ does in the heavenly tabernacle. And it is far superior. And then verse 27 and 28 as we round out the chapter. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so also Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins. That was the first trip but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. So, what do we need to walk away from this text with? If nothing else, walk away with these words. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes the judgment, all of us will face an end to our life here on this earth. And after that end, we will face Christ 
We will face judgment, the judgment seat of God. But we're reminded he will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation for all who are eagerly waiting for him. See, Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of the people. So even though we will face death and then judgment, the outcome of that judgment can be assured because Christ died for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. And if you have turned to Christ, trusting in him for salvation, accepting the sacrifice he has made on your behalf in the presence of God, the fact that he is our high priest, our mediator between man and God, and he has made that perfect sacrifice, atoning for our sin, means we are made right with God. Our inheritance is the new covenant in the blood of Christ. Our inheritance is that our sins are paid for, and not in an inadequate fashion, not with the sacrifice of animals, but with a high priest that entered the heavenly tabernacle and made a perfect, sinless sacrifice that for all time paid the price for sin yours and mine he offers us forgiveness salvation and a right relationship with god will we take hold of that offer will we accept the atoning sacrifice of christ on our behalf or will we reject it and bear the weight and guilt of our sin on ourselves and face the consequences that that brings, the eternal consequences of being separated from God. Those are the two options. And I hope you're, you're hearing it and seeing it here in the text. What God has done for us and that it is because of his love for us that he has gone to such great lengths to save us. That all of that Old Testament stuff that for so many is confusing is all pointing towards Christ. That's where we find our peace. That is where we find our security. In Christ. Who shed his blood for our sin. A perfect sacrifice. A high priest in the presence of God, mediating for us. Having paid the price for us. So that we might be right with God. What a wonderful gift that our Creator has bestowed upon us. His love. And showing us the length of His love. Let's turn to him in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Christ, for his atoning sacrifice. We thank you that you have done everything necessary to remove to remove that penalty of sin, that death penalty that was on our head, that you and Christ have taken it upon yourself and have paid it so that we don't have to that sin is forgiven and its hold is broken because of the shed blood of Christ. Lord, thank you for welcoming us into your presence through Christ. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.